You guys are the best. Okay, so welcome to our uh, fifth installment, I think it is, of our series, uh, Keep It Simple Saints, Keep It Simple Saints, where we're working our way through the Gospel of John uh, and really digging deep into some of the lessons that we can draw out there, some of the basic, really simple, helpful stuff of the Christian life. And as we prepare to warm our brains up for the message this morning, I've asked James Faber to help me uh, with something to kind of kick us off, uh, which I'm trusting he's going to uh, appear as if by magic through the doors any second. Uh, Any second? Uh, Any second? No, 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 that's not going to happen. Okay, well, that's just something we'll have to do another time, so that's fine. Um, We're going to read this morning together from John chapter... 7. John chapter 7. So why don't you turn there with me? It's going to come up on the screen for us in a moment. And uh, and we're going to read together. So after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You, you go up to the feast, I'm not going to this feast, but my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, oh, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said he's a good man, and others said, no, 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 he's leading the people astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Well, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. See, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law, so why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon, who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them back, I did one work, one miracle, one sign, one miraculous deed, and all of you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses might not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is our key text, that last phrase that Jesus shares with the crowd. The last thing he says to the crowd in verse 24, he says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So why don't you just join me, stand a moment, we're going to pray in a second, but it would be great just to put this declaration, this, these words of Jesus on our own lips and say them this morning. So say, say out loud, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
And if I can simplify that a little bit, not that I want to sort of muck around too much with the words of Jesus, but Karis sometimes says to me, judgy, no judgy, which of course means, hey, you judgmental one, stop judging. So I just want you to get your judgy finger, point it at your neighbor, make sure they're here with you and say, judgy, no judgy, no judgy. And you can sit down now, we're going to pray in a moment, but as we do that, James has appeared, so we're going to do something a bit fun. Um, it's sort of fun for me, uh, and we'll see whether Karis thinks it's fun as well. So in the Doherty family, there's been quite a lot of discussion as to uh, whether you can tell the difference between own brand butter or Lurpak butter. Now, Aldi and Lidl, two of my favorite places in all the world, uh, do uh, their own versions of Lurpak, Norpak, and Danpak. And those uh, butter brands are a fine example in not judging by appearances because as far as I've ever been able to tell, they are, they're the same, right? Completely identical. It, they, you know they do this, don't they? With all the own brand stuff, they even make the packaging look the same. So when you try and judge by appearances, you're like, in a dim light, you could probably mistake one for the other as you're sort of running through the shop. So, so here we go. We've got James knows which of these is, is Norpak and which of these is Lurpak. I don't know. Karis, my love, would you mind just coming and just helping us? Because you always say it's very easy to tell the difference between the two. Now, first of all, by the way, as, as we as were about to come up to preach, Karis said, hey, it's going to be great this morning. I love you so much. You're just going to be great this morning. I felt terrible, really guilty, because <laughs> I knew what I was about to do to her. But I didn't feel guilty enough to change my plan, so that's just one of those things. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, okay. Well, I know, we don't want to rush you. That's fine. I'll cleanse my palate. Yeah, of course. Okay, so here we go. Judgy, no judgy. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, you always say they're completely different. I'll tell you what's not different, the price, but let's not go there right now. Okay, so that was from my left hand, just checking with James, who knows which is which there. That was from my left hand bread. (laughs) Right hand bread. (laughs) As I reflect, as we, uh, we'll give you a moment just to think, but um, as I think about it, this looks good. Um, As I think about this, it is entirely possible that James Faber has just pranked us by putting the same spread on both. (laughs) You know, I thought I was going to have the last laugh, but maybe James is just one step ahead of me again. What do we think? Do you think James is having the last laugh? I think, I think, I think that's the Lurpak. We think right hand is Lurpak. No, I don't know. James, I might Listen, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, judge with right judgment. It's a left hand now, we're changing. Okay, left hand Lurpak. One is Danpak, the round bit. Oh my goodness, she's done it! She's done it, okay. Wow. Okay, up top, come on, here we go. Wow. Okay, yeah, I know. Okay. Well, this has really backfired. So, uh, yeah, 
Uh, ask me in a few weeks how the grocery budget is going, right? Okay. So do, do not judge by mere appearances, but judge with right judgment. And this simple, simple, simple command of Jesus is really profound. Simple in what he says, but lots of implications for our lives as we live the Christian life and go about all that he's called us to do. So I want to keep exploring this theme of not judging by mere appearances. It touches lots of areas of our life. So in, I think it was in 2008, a, an American professor uh, f- called um, Professor Todorov ran an experiment with his students at Princeton University. And he put up in front of his students a headshot, a, a portrait, a mugshot of somebody and lots of different faces of, of, of mugshots. And some of these he put up in front of his students for less than a second and then asked them to make a judgment about these people. He said, I want you to rate them according to likability, competence, trustworthiness, all these different sort of character attributes. He said, I want you to rate them. Now, the first thing that surprised everyone in Princeton was that the agreement between people who weren't looking at these things at the same time was a really high level of agreement of who scored well on competence, likability, and so on and so forth, and who did not score well, just based on this, you know, less than one second glance at a photo. So that was the first surprise. The second surprise, as he confessed to his students, was actually these weren't just any old random photos that he pulled together. These were the campaign portraits of people running for political office. And actually, the, the, uh, for senatorial races, congressmen, and uh, state governors. And there was a correlation in about 70% of incidences where people voted high score for competence based on a fleeting impression of what they'd seen of this photograph. 70% of times, that was predictive of the outcome of the elector- electoral race. So on the one hand, you've got a completely superficial decision based on second of, of what you see of a person. And on the other hand, you've got the entire democratic elective process in which we look at their policy, their experience, their you know, positioning, their career. And in 70% of instances, it was whether or not this person looked competent for a one-second glance that was a good indicator of the result of the race. Now, before we go into judgy-no-judgy no judgy mode on our, our brothers and sisters over the pond, uh, they replicated this experiment in England, Finland, Germany, Australia, and Mexico. And in every time, they found that the brief glance at person and judging them, competence was a surprisingly high indicator of how this person would do in an electoral race. Remarkable. Jesus is really nailing us with this one. Don't judge by mere appearances, whether it's in politics or any other area of life, but judge with right judgment. The reality is we know we go through life and we make snap decisions and judgments about people. We judge them by how they look, what they wear, the kind of watch they're using, um, the phone that they've got and the car that they drive. We do these snap superficial judgments. And Jesus says, don't judge by mere appearances. You know, it's remarkable that this wisdom of Jesus applies not just to the way that we engage with other people, but how we engage with the situations that we're in. How we feel about a situation that we're in is directly related to the judgments we've made about that situation and the circumstances. So we sometimes feel that we're not in control of our own feelings, that they're charging off and I I can't control my feelings. But actually, our feelings are a result of the judgments that we've made. 
It's really important that we get that. Jesus says, judge rightly. So let me give you an example that happened to me this week. Thursday evening, I was leaving the office, walking up to my car, and uh, doing some admin on, on the banking app that we've got. And I spotted that there was a pending transaction for the next day of 130-something pounds. And I was like, don't know what that is. So I looked at it, and it was direct finance or direct credit or something. I thought, oh, my, what, what's going on with this? And we used to have swimming lessons in Gateshead for the kids. And the direct debits for Gateshead Council are all done by this other company called something like direct finance or direct credit or something like that. And I was thinking, uh, and when we left Gateshead for our swimming lessons, they, they messed the whole thing up, and they kept charging us. So I had to email the council and get a refund and blah, 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 you know, all of that kind of rigmarole. So I saw this thing. I was like, oh, for goodness sake, here we go again. You know, <sighs> Gateshead Council at it again kind of thing. And then I thought, or worse, it's another direct debit company. Karis has signed us up for, like, something, <laughs> which she hasn't talked to me about, and they're coming for my money, you know? What, what has she done now? Thursday evening, and I'm thinking, you know, Friday, my parents are up visiting, I'm speaking at the weekend, I'm meant to be taking the kids out, so Karis, all my head's going as I'm driving home, I'm meant to be taking the kids out, trying to give Karis some time to, you know, kind of do some stuff without the baby, uh, I, I don't have time to spend the entire morning on the phone to Gateshead Council sorting this stuff out, I don't, if Karis has, like, signed us up for something, I don't have time to argue with her about it, and then spend the afternoon fixing the mess that she's got us into, now, I'm not saying I'm right, that I felt like that. I'm just saying that's how I felt as I was driving home. So got home, parked the car, got my phone out, looked at it again, and I looked at the transaction, and I noticed a little plus sign at the start of the transaction. Someone wasn't taking money out of my account. Someone was putting money into my account. Suddenly I felt very differently about this whole situation. I had judged on a superficial judgment and I'd spent a 15-minute car journey crossed with Gateshead Council, my wife, and the finance company because I just hadn't looked at the thing properly. Now, how many... By the way, that was from our last train journey that we made where we were delayed. And uh, praise God, hallelujah, that's a straight contribution to the Doherty Conference Saving Budget Fund, all right? Just want you to know that. And I want you all to be thinking very hard. Any surprise windfalls that you guys get, refunds from the train companies or anyone else, saving for the conference, right? Practical application. How many times do we go through life where we're in a situation and we make a snap judgment because we haven't spotted some of the detail that sits around it? How many times do we go, oh, this thing that's going on, it's like this and the, like this. How many times it, you know, it's possible to make a judgment about our kids' behavior because we haven't thought about the bigger context of what's going on in their lives? It's possible to make a snap judgment. Why did my wife talk to me? Why did my husband talk to me like that? Why didn't that person reply to my message when I expected them to? All these things, our feelings can... Why, why did that person not come back to me on the way they said they would? What, all these different areas we can make snap judgments because we're just looking at appearances. We're not judging with a right judgment and our feelings race off in all sorts of directions. Jesus is so wise when he speaks to us. He says, judge rightly. Judge rightly. We're going to pray in a moment and then we're going to look at three really important areas of practical application for us where we can judge rightly and it will help us in our lives. So let's pray. Why don't you stand with me again, sir? I know you're with me. I said we pray earlier. I don't want to forget.
Pray with me. Lord Jesus, speak to my life that your word will go into my heart so that I can speak it with my lips and practice it with my life. Amen. Amen. So three really simple areas where not judging by appearances can help us a lot. We're going to talk about flexibility, we're going to talk about identity, and we're going to talk about possibility. Flexibility, identity, and possibility. So the first of these, we're going to turn back to John chapter 7, and we're going to pick out a few verses where we see something of the flexible way that God works in life. And it's not always how we expect. So John 7 verse 3. So Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. Well, no one works in secret if you want to be known openly. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Not even his brothers believed in him. Well, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time's always here. The world can't hate you. It hates me because I testify about it. Its works are evil. You guys, you go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast. My time hasn't yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. See, it's interesting to me, they want Jesus to go when they want him to, where they want him to, and in the way that they want him to. And Jesus is having none of it. In the end, he does eventually go where they want, and he does eventually go to the place that they want. But he does it in the way that is how he wants to do it. And I can sort of hear, as I read this text, I can imagine what the grumbling and the mumbling and the murmuring might have been like, oh, there goes Jesus, once again, changing the plan. Never makes up his mind about what he wants to do. You know, often, you know, he says he's going to do this, and then he does something else, and God's not changeable in the way that he does things. It's just that his way of getting us to the place he intends us to be, he, sometimes he takes us on the scenic route so we see more on the way. Sometimes he takes us by the long way round because he's got something to form in our character as we go on that direction. It's really important that we don't get offended by the way that he does that. The Christian life is a life where we're flexible. We don't set the expectations of how God's going to deal with us. That's not the right way to do things. We say, God, if you want to you wake me up in, a, in the night with a dream, great. God, you want to wake me up in the morning early to pray? Holy Spirit, do what you need to do. You want to call on my savings that I put aside to make a special offering? Sure, I'll be flexible about how you want me to do that. There's a life where we flex our agenda according to what God wants us to do. I'm sure I've shared before the experience of a pastor in, in the States, a guy called Mark Batterson. He's a church planter in Washington, D.C., and a real hero of mine in a number of different ways. And he tells this story about God's flexibility with healing, actually, with supernatural breakthrough in his life. Mark Batterson tells this story. He was 12 or 13 years old. He'd moved to a new city, and they went to a new church, him and his family, and the welcome team from the church came to visit his house and say, hey, you know, great that you visited with us on Sunday. We want to come and say hello, make contact. Is there anything we can pray for your family about? And uh, I think either his mum and dad volunteered or he said, I've got asthma. 
uh, as a young boy, 12, 13 years old, he's struggling with asthma on his inhaler pretty much every day. And, and he said, you know, will you pray that God heals my asthma? So the team from this church, the new church, they prayed for him. And the next morning he woke up and all of the warts on his hand had been healed. And he was like, God, did you mishear the prayer that we prayed yesterday? I, I prayed for you to heal my asthma, but you've healed my warts. And he said, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, I just want you to know I'm able. And he says, 12, 13 years old, that was the first time he heard the voice of God in a really profound way in his life. I just want you to know I'm able. And, you know, Mark Batson didn't take offense with God over that situation. He didn't say, oh, God, you should have done what I expected you to do. He was really flexible in how he received the healing of God into his life. He said, God, thank you for healing my warts. Thank you that you spoke to me. Thank you I had this spiritual experience of hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit for the first time. And he went, over the years, he felt a call into ministry, and he um, dropped out of a, uh, a degree that he was doing where he had a, a scholarship, basically, to go in and into seminary and train to be a, a full-time pastor. And as he was growing up in his teenage years, he said, you know, this asthma was still with him. But it taught him grit and perseverance. He wanted to be on the high school basketball team, and he, I think he got a basketball scholarship to university. Now, you can't do that with asthma if you're not willing to really push through and get some grit and some perseverance. And he said, through that experience of a very physical situation, God formed his character so that when the first church that he planted was not a success, he had the resilience in him to get back up and when God spoke to him about planting a second church, he had it in him to say, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to serve God where he's called me to be. He didn't get offended over the, as- over the warts and the asthma. He didn't get offended over the first char- church that wasn't a success. But he kept hearing what God was saying in the moment he was in. And then the second church that he was in became just an amazing influence on the nation. In Washington, D.C., lots of the, sort of the great and the good uh, you know, influenced by the ministry that they have in that political city. And in 2016, I was listening to a podcast a few, uh, probably two years back or something, but in 2016, Mark Batson was healed of his asthma. And he testifies about the goodness of God. Over, you know, so if all he'd done was looked at that one short-range experience and said, I'm going to judge the character and nature of God based on this immediate short-term situation, he would have missed the call of God on his life, the influence he had on other people, and the healing that God eventually brought into his situation. He was flexible with the dealings of God in his life. Somebody else who I've always, uh, I read his biography a while back, who I really admire for his flexibility, was the American preacher D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a, uh, an evangelist and a preacher, first in America, then in the United Kingdom in the sort of 1800s, from 1850 through to the turn of the century or so. And he had a great attitude. He came from a very poor background, uh, barely literate, but God used him anyway to preach the gospel to hundreds of people over, over the years. And uh, f- really interesting character, great biography, great life story of, of God's faithfulness to his situation. And there was a time when he was reflecting on how God had brought funds into his life for a, a particular missionary venture that he was on. And he said of, of that moment, he said, God gave me the money that day because I needed it. He's always given me the money when I needed it. But often I've asked him when I thought I needed it. And he said, no, Moody, you shin along the best way you can. It'll do you good to be hard up a while. I read that. I just love that attitude that says, hey, you know what, God, if you want to provide for me in this moment, hallelujah, supernatural provision might come through, and I'll trust you that if it comes through, it's the right thing. 
But if it doesn't, I trust that you're doing something that forms my character, my perseverance, my situation. You know, the remarkable thing about the life of Moody was in his later years, he actually came into a very sizable income. Uh, He was one of the first preachers, I suppose, to benefit from Christian music publishing sales. And in 1873, I think it was, he had this vision. A lot of new songs had been written, springing out of the changed hearts in the revival as he was preaching. And he had this vision to get the song. People regularly said, you know, where can I get this music? So he said, okay, I'm going to try and collect some of these songs, and we're going to publish a, a songbook. And he offered it to a few different publishers. He was in London at that time, actually. And then they were, none of the publishers caught the vision for it. They were like, nah, it's just too much of a, of a risk. So with the last couple of, or the last few dollars practically that he had, he paid for the cost of having this songbook printed in London. And over time, it became a huge commercial success. And you know what happened? The religious folk, the naysayers, the complainers said, what's he doing having all this income to pay for his mission trips? Why is he taking all these royalties from them? They were not flexible. Suddenly, the flexibility needed to be elsewhere. They couldn't see that God, if God wants to provide for his work through a completely legitimate business interest, hallelujah, he's completely able to do that if he wants to. But the religious folk of the day grumbled. Now, to be clear, Moody wasn't born yesterday, well, physically, but he wasn't daft, and he knew that he had to be above suspicion. So when he was in London, all of the royalties from the songbook were put into trust and a board of trustees decided, he never went directly into his bank account. A board of trustees directed where the income went to pay for missionary ventures. And when he moved his work back to the States, a new board of trustees was set up in America who directed it first into his evangelistic efforts and uh, later in years to set up private schools for, for, for the poor, basically, in this very poor neighborhood where he had grown up. He was wise, but flexible. So I love the character of D.L. Moody. And I look at the words of Jesus, don't judge by appearances. Jesus wants to go to the feast in his time when he wants to, not when we want him to, not when his brothers want him to, not when the religious folks say it's right. And our challenge in life is, will we submit ourselves to the dealings of God to do what he wants, when he wants, in the way he wants, like a D.L. Moody would have done? So flexibility is crucial. I want to talk about identity. We're going to look in John chapter 7 again at how this theme of identity comes out uh, with Jesus' contemporaries. So there was much muttering about him among the people. Some of them said, oh, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. But because of fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And then down in verse 14, somewhere about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he began teaching. So the Jews marveled, saying, wow, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? And then Down in verse 20, more speculation about his identity. You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? It fascinates me that in this passage, this is really this uh, topic of identity is what causes Jesus to speak so directly to his audience and say, stop judging by appearances. Judge rightly. It's all about his identity and what they're saying about him and the complaints and the accusations that they're making at that time. But I find it fascinating that as a nation, the further we move away from having a right understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ, the more problems we have in understanding our own identity as individuals in this nation. As I look at our nation today, I see a material 
breakdown in people's understanding of self-identity in gender, in sexuality, and even as a nation-state, who we are and what we're about as a nation. And I can't help but see that somehow as we, this island and, and surrounding parts, as we move further away from understanding the identity of Jesus, we move further away from having a right sense of identity about ourselves. And I see that Jesus in this moment is speaking to the people saying, you're so obsessed with my identity, but if you get a right understanding of my identity, it will change your own identity. How you see yourself, the voice that you hear that says what kind of person you are, what kind of value you have, and what kind of characteristics you carry, it will change that identity that you hold about yourself if you can understand his identity. I went to mum and I and the kids, my mum and I went, uh, went to the metro centre yesterday. Uh, I, I guess I don't go out a lot. I kind of have to recognise that, right? Um, I don't. I know. So I, I go to work and I go for a swim and I hang out with my kids. But I guess, anyway, we were walking around the metro centre and I was looking at these crowds of the youth, the young people, and I was like, man, everything here is fake. You know, what? because uh, I'm, I'm bubbling in my background, right? I'm thinking about identity. I'm thinking about this passage. I'm thinking about what is the message that Jesus is saying. And I look at these crowds of young people. I'm like, everything is just fake. It's all on the surface. It's, you know, fake hair, f- fake eyelashes, and fake tan. And that's just the men. Yeah. Hey. I know, I know. It's just... Honestly, I'm looking at these young people. I'm thinking, is this what people now find attractive these days? Because it's all about what we can put here on the surface and front onto people. Now, I know that God's church is far more intelligent than that. We're far more discerning than that. We're not the kind of people who would be so obsessed with the identity in the front that we present that we get absorbed in that kind of thing, would we? No, not in this church, not in God's church in the United Kingdom. But I saw it at play as we were in the high street, as we are in the shops, as we're in our lives. People are confused about their identity. And I'm God, help us have an encounter with Jesus to the extent that we know his identity, that it transforms our own identity. Amen? Amen. Let me finish by talking about this last area, possibility. 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 I I love this. So we're going to read again. John chapter 7. Dwell on this subject. Jesus answered them, I did one work, one deed, one miraculous event, and everybody marvels at it. See, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, if on the Sabbath man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. And then the the killer line, don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. Now, Jesus is referring here back to something that we could read earlier in John's Gospel. So, In John chapter 5, I think it is, he is in Jerusalem at an earlier point, and he heals this man who's been um, lame for 38 years. And he says to him, take up your mat and walk. And the man takes up his mat and walks. And the religious folk, instead of saying, wow, it's amazing, instead of saying, Jesus, you've got authority, instead of saying, Jesus, you can heal the sick, instead of saying, glory, hallelujah, this man can carry himself, they say, don't carry your mat on the Sabbath. That's what they get focused on. It's, it's unbelievable. Jesus breaks into the, the world that he's in, into Jerusalem of the day, ex- instead of saying, Jesus, teach us how to pray for the sick. Jesus, teach us how to speak like you speak with authority. Jesus, teach us how to do the things that you're doing that heals people's lives. They say, don't walk on the grass. 
I mean, it's unbelievable. They miss the dealings of God. They miss the possibilities that exist in God's kingdom because they're so constrained by what they say should or shouldn't be possible or right or done at a particular time. They almost miss it. In 1939, a young man called George Danzig was studying mathematics at the University of California. And uh, he made a bit of a mistake one day. He was late to his lecture. Mistake. And as he came in, he sort of scrabbled in and sat down at the back. He saw on the chalkboard at the back of the room, there was two equations put up. Now, what he didn't realize, the lecturer had been talking about these as a sort of an entry point to the, to the class, to the semester for that year, as these two very famous equations that have never been solved. But George Zangster came in late, so he missed that part of the lecture, and he thought they were the homework. So he dutifully copied down these two equations into his notebook and took them away to do his homework. Now, he said it took him a bit longer than he expected to get his uh, assignment handed back in for that week, but he solved not one but two of these equations. The next time he saw his lecturer, he thought he was going to get an ear bashing because he was late with his handing in. His lecturer was practically doing somersaults because this guy had solved two of the famous equations from statistics that nobody thought were solvable at that time. He had a mathematical prodigy in his class. George Danzig later said in an interview, he said, if someone had told me that they were unsolvable, I don't think I would have tried so hard to solve them. But because I didn't know they weren't possible, I thought that I must be able to do these things. Now, I wonder what that says to our lives. Because we know something's impossible, we don't even open our minds to the possibility that God could change the situation. We say to ourselves, well, it's that time of year, I guess. Everybody just gets a cold at this time of year. Well, people in my family, we've always struggled with our knee joints, and I guess I'm just getting to an age where I struggle with my knees. Well, people from my neighborhood have never really been able to make ends meet, so I guess that's just going to be the future for me. We constrain ourselves to this set of possibilities. I was reflecting on this, and I was thinking, you know, what? Jesus was in the tomb. He was constrained. As far as everybody could see at that situation, the tomb is the most confining place on earth. They could have said, well, that's it, game over, nothing's coming out of this. But Jesus broke through the impossible to bring, we heard it this morning, to bring possibility into the lives of men and women. He broke through where they tried to box him in, he broke out. And so this morning for our church, there's a possibility that exists in heaven. We're not going to be those that are confined by what we think or what others say or what we might have heard in the past. We're going to be those who receive the possibility of God. We're going to be those who see the breakthrough that could happen in God's economy and receive that into our own lives. So if you can receive in this moment that whatever you've said in the past, or whatever you've thought about yourself and your background, or whatever situation you might have come from, if you can conceive that God's possibility could reach down from the empty grave, could reach out from the empty tomb and move in your life, and I want you to stand with me this morning as a way of saying, God, I believe that you can make the impossible possible in my life. And as you're responding in this moment, I want you to call to mind in your mind's eye what it is that you know you've received as impossible in your past. What it is that you've said over yourself that's the equivalent of saying, we don't carry mats on the Sabbath. We don't do that sort of thing here. We might not, whatever it is that you've said over yourself that in the past has held you back, I want you to call that to mind. 
And as you see it, I want you to believe that it's like Jesus is taking that away from your life and holding that on the cross with himself because he's taking your impossibility and turning that into a possibility that only exists in him. I want you to conceive that in your mind's eye. as we're here, I want you to pray out really simply, Lord Jesus, make my impossibility your possibility. And if you can do it, I want you to start praying out specifically what it is that you want God to do in your life, where you want to see that breakthrough, where you know your own words have boxed you into what might become a tomb, but now's the moment to break out of that tomb and see the change that God wants in your life. It might be in the area of healing. It might be in the area of your ministry. It might be in the area of your relationships and your family. Wherever it is you know that God's calling to your life, I want you to start speaking that out now in faith. That at the cross, he made a way to change that situation, to unlock that tomb-like situation. city and over our nation where we so desperately need a change in the identity that we hold as a nation that individuals are holding of themselves we're going to make this a declaration and we're going to pray together one more time at the end it's written in the night it's shouting down the lines It's calling, it's calling out my name It's breaking every chain It's making all things right The precious blood of God Speaks a better word Speaks a better word It's written Shouting down the lines 
echoes through the night The precious blood of Christ Speaks a better word Speaks a better word And it's calling out my name And it's breaking every chain And it's making all things right blood of Christ speaks a better word speaks a better word says a gentle word breaks the bones just reminded that this morning that you know 
when the presence of God is moving and when the word that comes from God in a time and in a season speaks into our life. It's not a harsh word or a sort of over-the-top word or something, but actually a really gentle word from God can change a situation, can soften a stubbornness that we hold inside ourselves, can unlock a situation that's been closed down for a while. Because uh, uh, even, the, even the gentlest word from God has got real power in it. And I feel like there's probably people here that need to hear a gentle word over their lives that will actually break them from a course of action they've set themselves to and speak to them about a flexible position in God. People here who need to hear that they might have made plans and agendas and ideas and said, we're definitely doing this and it's got a rigidity about it. But you know what? I believe there's a gentle word from God that can open up that situation and say, hey, will you let me... Will you let God be in charge of that situation? Will you let him direct that situation? Will you let him shape the course of that situation? And he's not shouting that word or hammering on anybody. It's a really gentle word. It's an appeal. But I believe an appeal in the Holy Spirit has great power to change the course of our lives. And if you know that's worth for you, then please, 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 please respond. Respond to that word. Make the decisions you need to do the things that you need to to respond to that word for the rest of us I'd love us to make a declaration together and uh, I'll call upon the AV team to bring that up for us really simple declaration to put on our lips as we bring this time to a close come out of the way why don't we say this together Lord I believe should we do it together that was, uh, you know, sort of C grade or something. Okay, well, I'll, I'll do it loud. You do it at the same time as me. Let's try that one. Okay, Lord, I believe you are at work in my life. Please help me to judge with right judgment. Help me be flexible and see the possibilities that exist in you. Amen, amen. and amen. Amen.